0: I'm Matt Byers of the band It's been a while since we've had a podcast It's been actually since this summer Embarrassingly enough uh, That episode 9 took place Um, We've been very busy with the release Creation and release of our new record Moonsickness And you heard a track from that before this Which was We're Both Villains From the, the record And it's kind of tucked away in the second half But really a cool song Really worthwhile So that's why that's right there Moonsickness came out a couple weeks ago and has been doing very well with critical notices and uh, attention it's been receiving in general. So uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to hear that. It's available in all digital outlets as well as um, from our label Home Tapes um, and all the other not brick and mortar, but not strictly digital either, Amazon and Sound, all those sorts of outlets. Uh, our guest on episode 10 is Rafael Alvarez, and this was recorded live at Atomic Books in Baltimore, Maryland, a great store down in Hamden. And it was a really fun night. Rafael was there, uh, and his, he's primarily known for writing for HBO's The Wire, but was there uh, promoting a collection of short stories he has out called Tales from the Holy Land, which is stories based in and about Baltimore and various characters. There. He's a wonderful lyrical and musical writer who is the rare writer whose stuff... To me, I enjoy more as I read it out loud. It's phonetically fascinating, rhythmically, I mentioned it's really, very, very musical at its core, and I mentioned this in the podcast as well. So Raphael does read from his one of his short stories uh, during the podcast, and I think you'll hear that as well. So without further ado, uh, here's Raphael Alvarez and us from Atomic Books in Baltimore. Thanks to Atomic Books for having us for this. It was a great night, good crowd, really fun event. Let's see you on the end of this. What we usually do now is just have a conversation about you know creative process, how you do things and how you actually one of the focuses of our podcast is <coughs> making your creative life work with the rest of your life because it's a very very rare situation where you can make those you can have your creative life be your professional life as well so that's one of the things we like to talk about. So I'll start out by saying this. How much does it bug you when people only refer to the wire when they talk about your work because I gotta admit I, I faced that conundrum when I was putting things on Facebook and on Twitter like I, I, I want this to be something that people recognize uh, but at the same time that's not what you're doing now of course so does that bother you? What What's your relationship with the show?
1: It's a I'm, a, I'm not feeling so well tonight so if I sound or look cranky I'm not. Um, <laughs> The wire is a two-edged sword. I am very, very grateful for it. I try to point out to folks that, you know, I was a hired hand on Mr. Simon's farm, you know, um, and he paid good wages, and we, you know, to keep the ridiculous metaphor going, we harvested a nice crop. Um, But I am not the wire. Um, I think I said um, on YPR the other day that, you know, Baltimore gets a lot of attention now in the greater world for more than just, you know, being, when I was little, it was the place where um, we made steel and we caught crabs and Babe Ruth was born here. Um, And I said that, you know, my Baltimore is not Barry Levinson's Baltimore, it's not David Simon's Baltimore, it's not John Waters' Baltimore, it's a little bit of all of those, but it's through my own filter, so you know I'm grateful to the wire on many levels. Um, but when it comes to you know the fiction and the stuff that I care most about, I uh, I don't I try not to trade it too much. But I don't I'm not embarrassed by it. I certainly, uh, but at the same time, you know I get a lot of work because they can't get David. <laughs> And they can't get Pelicano's, and it seems like they just keep coming down the list. Oh, we can get this guy, and that's fine. You know, I, I uh, um, the Wire, the Wire uh, didn't make me who I am. If I wasn't a writer already back in 02 when the Wire debuted, Simon wouldn't have asked me in the first place. I mean, we grew up together as buddies in the newsroom of the Sun, so I don't. Disown it, but at the same time, I I don't, you know, advertise
0: it. It, It's funny you mentioned trading on something, and I when I I'm a teacher. When I started teaching, I started teaching in the city, as often teachers do, because there's a lot of need and a lot of availability. And I in when the wire started, I would run into people, and they'd ask me what I do. I said, I'm a teacher. Where do you teach? And I'm no longer there, but I would explain that I started teaching in the city, you know, you have know, the perkins Own projects and the Lombardville School, and, and people would be like, they would be tuned in because of the wire, and they would be like, oh, wow, you know, they would they would have so much to, to ask me about. There was this mythology behind it, so I felt like I was trading on that as well, like, well, yeah, it's really, 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 really tough. Um, so I can completely relate to so that. there's
1: a story in this book towards the beginning called Juniebug. I get this call out of the blue. It's one of these situations, they can't get Simon, they can't get Pelicanos, they can get me. And uh, it's the book editor of the Edinburgh Scotsman newspaper in uh, Scotland. And he, on his own dime, he's flying to Baltimore to see. All, there was BBC Two carried the wire all five seasons, I believe, um, a couple years after it went off the air here. And there was, for a good year, maybe a little more, wire mania in Great Britain. I mean, it was all folks talked about them. I'm sure they talked about it at Buckingham Palace. And he wanted a to tour. Uh, and I used to be a cop reporter at the Sun for a while. And um, so I took him all around and, you know, here and there. And east side, west side. I took him into a couple of police districts. And, you know, the desk sergeants played along and told him a few stories. And I'm taking him back to his hotel room and he says, you know, thank you very much. It's, this was very important to me. What can I do to thank you? And I said, well, you're the editor of a book page. He says, yeah. I said, in, you know, in Britain, books are still a little more important than, you know, they are here, even though we're in a, a beautiful bookstore tonight. Um, I said, do you ever run fiction on your book page? He goes, every now and then, in the old days, newspapers were the Internet. Newspapers were the Internet all in one place. You just had to turn the pages, you know, to go from one subject to the other. And I said, well, I as a thank you, I'd like you to publish uh, one of my short stories. And he goes, I'd be happy to do that. And he pauses and goes, be like The Wire. (laughs) So, there's one story in here that is most like The Wire. It's still me, you know, it's filtered through me, but, you know, that's what I mean by trading on it a little bit. Um, And if I need somebody to answer my phone call, like, you know, I'm trying to get a gig at a bookstore in Charleston, uh, you know, I, I go on the Wrote with this book in a couple of weeks, and you know, when I want someone to call me back, I will use that. But I, I tend not to use it in my biographies or stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Is it, it me? No, it? it's not. No. no it's, um. Uh, it's Nigel Tufnel, getting the Air Force. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um. So, I read that story. It's fantastic, and it's interesting because that what I think what that points to as well is one of the more enterprising guys I know. Um, and of course, this is the first time we met in person. But I know you from online and in various in email and texts and everything else. And I guess we talked mm-hmm. on the phone once. But um, you're insistent upon finding a void finding a, a publishing platform, finding a way to get your work out, which I admire very, very much. And it's something we we work on as well. It's something you have to struggle <coughs> for, especially as you you referenced today with the internet. I mean, there's so much you know noise. There's so much content. You have to find a way. To, to get your voice heard, um, and I think that's really cool that you found a way for that to, to be published by asking very directly. Can you talk a little bit about how you subsist without, spe- you know, not, not into specifics about how you um, earn, a living. earn a living, yes. But it is, uh, you know, if you talk to most people about being a writer in this day and age, this is not something many people seek out, at least for financial components of it. So, no, I don't think they ever sought them out for
1: financial true. components. Um, uh, what I, the first thing I tell folks um, is I am not a content provider. You know, I, I'm a writer. You know, if you just want crap be around your ads, you know, uh, you know, half naked women because you're trying to teach people how to speak French, you know. Because they're look—it's called clickbait, you know. Just—they mm-hmm. don't really care what's in the center of the page because they're hoping people will click in the margins of the page. Um, you know, I, I honed this skill over many years, beginning a long time ago when newspapers truly were repositories for all manner of writing. Um, and uh,
0: you know, I—if I
1: really was just interested in the money, I'd still be in Los Angeles and. The wire took a hiatus between seasons three and four. If you notice, the end of season three has McNulty on the beat in a in a as a uniformed officer, and it tied up a lot of the loose ends because David was had not gotten the green light from HBO for a fourth and fifth season, and he definitely wanted the fourth, which was the the, the school season, and then I think he they they threw him a bone and let him get the fifth as well but that was 18 months that they were down and and I needed work I mean I'm a writer for Hunter I I don't give it away I've I've had people be upset because you know please come talk to my come talk to my class well we can't pay you I'm like University of Maryland you know whatever you know I don't ask for much but I it has to be something Um, I give some things away I do a lot of pro bono but it's on my terms you know I like, you know, my heart lies with inner-city Catholic education, and, and I'll do things for Mother Seton Academy or, you know, or St. Francis Academy. Um, but I often have to tell people, which I'm sure you, other artists here and musicians as well, like, you know, would, do you ask your plumber if he can fix your sink for free? You know, well, why, actually, I did. It, did, it didn't <laughs> go well. I mean, why was, is what awkward. we do, you know, is considered, you know... Um, should be given away or whatever, and and, and sometimes it didn't occur to them that, you know, you would want something, and when you ask, they go, oh, we can do that, and you know, we can come up with $100 or, or whatever, and, but anyway, um, I went to L.A. Uh, during the hiatus of The Wire and worked for, actually I wrote for Andre Brower, who was one of the stars of Homicide. He had a little mini-series on FX called Thief. Which he won his first Emmy for. That was cool. Um, so if it was just about the money, I'd still be there. Uh, but I didn't like Los Angeles very much, and I don't writing don't like writing for regular television very much. So I, uh, the analogy I use is I'm sort of like a uh, like a handyman. I have a little truck with a little ladder and a toolbox, and you know I will sell stories for as little as, as 50 bucks. Usually they are a couple paragraphs. Um, so that's, the analogy of that is I'm replacing your cabinets, you know. And then if you want an addition built to your home, like I'm, I'm doing a, uh, my next book will probably come out around early summer. It's a coffee table book on the uh, Love Mural Project where there's, there's one right over there on, on 36th and, um, you know, we came to an agreement. Um, my journalism tends to be the bread and butter. Uh, I just finished a script. Uh, I still write feature scripts. I just finished one with my oldest daughter, Amelia, who is an actor in L.A. She just booked a a national Dairy Queen, which that's going to be very good for her. Um, But she was sort of wise enough to realize that, you know, even with someone with her training, she went to the School for the Arts and graduated from the Tisch School at NYU and, has been a working actor for the last 10 years. There's still a lot of downtime when she said that. Um, would you teach me how to write scripts? Now, she loves LA. She wants to be there. She wants to go to the parties. She wants to schmooze, blah, blah, blah. I have no really interest in that. So I'm sort of like the man behind the curtain, and she's the face. And we just wrote this sort of romantic comedy. Um, I would never write a romantic comedy. I, mean, she, and I don't know if you've ever worked with, with your daughters or your fathers or your mothers, but like, you know, she calls me up and kicks my ass. Like, Dad, that that was late. We were we were supposed to work yesterday. And my time is valuable. I'm like, oh God, you know. Or, or here's my favorite. You know, when we're working, Dad, I'm not your daughter. Um, and good for her. You know. Absolutely. So I, I found this is all I do, and that's what I tell people when I ask. I'm not afraid to ask for money. What I spent 35 years learning to play the trumpet, so to speak. Right. You know that that great scene and who's seen Inside Lou and Davis here. So, you know, yeah. um, I don't think it's a great film, but the scene at the, at, the, at the in the dining room where he says, "You know, I'm not your pet. You're, you're, I'm not your you're, you're not, I'm not your stupid pet trick kid. You know, I, I do this for a living." Of course, what Lewin I think got wrong is he was sleeping on their couch and eating their food, so he could have given them at least one song. Um, but I, I I will not work for free unless I choose to give it away,
0: and then to folks that I want to share it with you. Well, Ben was playing earlier, was playing a Big Star, I, I think it was the record, maybe it was a, a compilation, but it reminds me of the Big Star song, You Can't Have Me, You Can't Have Me, You Can't Have Me, Can't Have me Not For Free, you yeah. know, which I think is, it demands respect, respect from, from people. Yes. I worked
1: for free when I was 19. I was one of the original staffers of the City Paper, which, believe it or not, started in 1977. I was 19 years old. I had never been published before. I was thrilled to death to see my name in the paper. And not only did I write for free, but I distributed the papers. We did it all, you know. And I I tell young people get a little portfolio together if you need to work for free for a year or so. But not after, you know, not not after you've learned to play your instrument. Once you've really learned to play your instrument, don't give it away.
0: Well, because as you pointed out, you're not somebody would not pay you for doing something for an hour for you or two hours for you. They're paying for a lifetime of experience that you've accrued. And yeah. I think that's, that's... This
1: one woman from UMBC like. said, uh, you know, come be on this panel. We're offering, you know, a, a, a boxed lunch. You know, so I'm going <laughs> to drive to NBC. I'm going to sit on this stupid panel with a bunch of stuffed shirts and academics who cannot do what I can do. I'm not saying I can do what they can do, but they're, you know, whatever. I asked her, I, I had never heard from her again, I said, is the president of UMBC, uh, or maybe it was the dean or something, it, what do they get, is there two hours of their time worth of box lunch? And, you know, that was the end of that.
2: I haven't given up hoping you could buzz me up and then we'd sit down, you explain how I...
0: When I first got to know Raphael a little bit, what he did was, you just put out a, I'm forgetting the terminology, a little Chat- chapbook. Oh. He put out a chapbook, um, and he sent it to me, and there was a story in it, and I'm not ensuring the story you're reading tonight necessarily, but um, I asked him then, because I do some radio shows for, some radio segments for The Signal on WYPR, and I asked him if I could read that. Um, on WYPR for an inclusion on a broadcast at some point. When I took it to Aaron Hankin, who's the producer of the show, he said it's very unusual for someone to read a story that, that, you know, he's not the author. But when I had read it, what had struck me about it was that it was a lot closer to singing than it was to just reading. It's beautifully written, and but I love to read things aloud. And the way you wrote is so musical that it really lent itself to that. Um, so I, I say that as a means of introduction to, to what you're, whatever it is you're choosing to read tonight um, that that's one of the things I think is, is one of the, the wonderful things about Raphael's work so thank you yeah absolutely thank you very much
1: first I'd like to thank Tom Fuchs for carrying the book and for having events like this um, any of you here Remember a band from D.C. called the Slicky Boys? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'll be uh, having a literary conversation uh, with the former lead singer of the Slicky Boys, named Mark Noon, who actually blurred the book for me. Um, musicians spend lots of times in buses and vans, and some musicians are, on one hand, not formally educated but incredibly well-read, uh, like Merchant Seaman used to be in the old days. So. I'll be at the Creative Alliance, which is the Patterson Theater tomorrow night uh, at five o'clock with Mark Noon. He's here's. Oh, also, I'd like to, um, to dedicate what I'm about to read uh, to the memory, the blessed memory of, of Phil, Phil Everly, who we lost uh, this week. And. Um, I didn't know enough in 1964, when the Beatles were on Sullivan, to care about the Everly's, but uh, I I caught up. Um, does anyone here remember a guy named Robin Trower? Okay, Robin Trower was big in my life in 1973. Um, his album was called Bridge of Size, it probably sold 10 million records, and it was, it was you know what what they call stoners today? We called freaks back in the '70s, and it was it was sort of stoner music. It was real, a little bit like the guy over here, his guitar. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, think, yeah. Trower had a, a song called Two Rolling Stone. and uh, <laughs> uh, We thought we were so fucking cool, you know? I thought it would last forever. I guess Phil Everly maybe thought it would last forever. And the best quote I ever heard about how it changes, I I never thought there'd be a day where rock and roll didn't drive the culture anymore, you know, and and drive the culture every way you can imagine, including, you know, advertising. You know, I'm old enough now where, like, hip-hop seems, like, relatively new. It's like 30 years old. I mean, Elvis Costello is a new band to me. <laughs> and that may just mean that I'm stuck, you know. Um, but Pete Townsend had the greatest line about that. Uh, long after the punks and long after hip-hop and whatever it is we have today, I don't know what it's called. But um, he said, our job is not to understand them. Our job is not to help them. And he's talking about being a dinosaur. because our job is just to get out of the fucking way. Um I mean I I've never heard it but but uh people just like John Totoro. <laughs> am I the first guy to say but that? I actually am John Totoro. <laughs> <laughs> John Totoro, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Anyway, I didn't think... I'm 18 years old, I'm listening to Robin Trower on an 8-track, I'm getting stoned every day, and I didn't think it would ever end. And, uh, this is a story about rock and roll called uh, Two Rolling Tookie. T-O-O-K-I. And it's three... Oh, one last question. Have you ever, any of you, had a friend that would do anything you asked him to do? I'm not talking about boy-girl shit, I'm just talking about like some dude it's like, hey, man, why don't you fill in the blank? And this is about a guy who would do that. I paid him to inventory every single item in his parents' his parents' were hoarders. So I paid him to inventory every single thing in his parents' house. <clears throat> Five carving knives and a brown paper bag of plastic straws, two ice picks, a wooden-handled corkscrew, one large barbecue fork and a 1950s Hamilton Beach milkshake mixer, a wedding gift to my parents. I'm limping from tile to tile. Yeah, man, me and Jimmy Page, we're out on the tiles. No double neck Gibson and a violin bow, just me and this broken leg, a clipboard and a retractable pen that says Tokulski Pet Food and Supplies. They're running stock cars on the dirt track in the woods across the road. Saturday, 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 see the fabulous 20 cars at Diabolical Mercy Drag Speedway. Even in the snow, they've gotten those wrecks. And it's snowing pretty good now, good enough to cancel school. I'd give anything to be done with this stupid inventory and get out of the house. Uncle Felooch pays me $20 a week to catalog every last spoon and number two pencil. They just passed the minimum wage, $2.30 an hour. That was 1976. So a 20 ain't bad, depending on how fast I go. Fallujah's got plenty of money, but he spends half of it on old radios, and he stuffs the rest under the mattress. He lives here for free. He's mom's mother's brother. So he makes up stupid chores for me to do, and he slips me a couple bucks so he doesn't feel like a freeloader. Mom says I waste my money on worthless crap. She should know. A pair of mounted butterflies, a large porcelain wine decanter shaped like a poodle. Poodle bites, baby. Poodle chews it. More than a hundred bingo daubers in all colors of watery ink to mark bingo cards. A pair of burned pizza pans, and above the stove, a saloon clock that reminds us at every meal that we are fortunate enough to be in the land of pleasant living. Mom went batshit when I told her what I was doing and ordered me, do not come near any of me and your father's personal stuff. Why the hell does he need to know what we've got in the house? Ain't it enough? He's in the goddamn house? In the foyer, a pair of antique barber chairs, a ceramic knickknack of a rooster chasing a white girl, paired with one of a black boy chasing a hen. A, bro- a broken Montgomery Ward's organ, more of a toy than an instrument, just another flat surface for my mother's knick-knack, paddy-whack, nightmare of frogs and lily pads and toadstools. The closet has two tennis rackets, one wooden, one aluminum, 19 assorted coats, including one with a moth-eaten fox head and a canister vacuum cleaner, Eureka. I wish Basilio would come by and get me. That asshole never calls. He either shows up or he doesn't. Above the kitchen sink, a gem that my uncle has coveted since he got too old to live by himself. An Emerson my mother got when she made her confirmation at St. Augustine's over in Elkridge. They call it a portable, but it weighs a ton, like a car battery with a couple of knobs and a dial and a see-through salmon-colored pink light. I got it tuned to W-A-Y-E, and Time Was my Wishbone Ash from Argus. I got it turned up as loud as it'll go. My parents are out trying to make all the day's deliveries before the roads get too bad, and my uncle is half-deaf. Man, the snow is really coming down. I can hardly see past the statue of the Blessed. Well, what do you know? Here he comes, the rock star himself, banging up the drive in his mother's space station AMC pacer, Montrose, Space Station Number 5. He's wearing state trooper mirror shades and a fucking blizzard. Yeehaw. <laughs> I keep trying to talk him into running that pacer over at the dirt track across the street. Right, he says. Dark brown beetle hair down past the collar collar, of his quadrophenia army jacket. Get in the fucking car, he says. What a car. Mellow yellow paint job. Brown vinyl bucket seats. Fake wood paneling on the dash. a tilt steering column. And black vinyl roof. Factory installed 8-track built into the console. And a born-again bumper sticker on the back. God gave rock and roll to you. My folks are going to kill me when they find out that I went out. But they almost broke my other leg after I fell off the roof when I was up there drinking beer instead of cleaning out the gutters. I'm supposed to start up the crockpot for dinner, but what do they expect me to do? Stay home? Fucking Basilio. Everybody in school tried to lay a nickname on him, but nothing stuck. We're seniors at Transfiguration High, best friends. Rock and roll has never let us down, and I'm not going to let him down. If he's crazy enough to come get me in a blizzard, I'm crazy enough to go with him. Turn the stove off, lights off, a quick shout-out to my uncle. He's either dead or sleeping, door locked, and I'm gone. First thing when I open the door of the car, a thick cloud of pot smoke billows out into the bite of January. Not November winter, not December winter, not January winter, Johnny winter. He doesn't help me with the door. He doesn't help me with my crutches. He just sits there swiveling his head as Captain Beefheart howls along with Zappa's guitar. Frank bending strings the way Einstein bent light. Beefheart was 35 years old today, and last week Zappa told Dick Cavett, "Quote, the disgusting stink of a too loud electric guitar—that's well, my idea of good time." Ocelia's got a paper cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee on the dash, and a half-smoked joint in the ashtray. The new Rolling Stone is face up on the passenger seat. Bob Dylan and Joan Baez on the cover, are all bundled up like they're on a fucking ski trip. What a pile of shit, I say. Fishing the joint out of the ashtray as Basilio turns around for us to leave. Keith Moon could eat Joan Baez for breakfast. Yeah, but Bob might give him a run for his money, says Basilio, and he puts his nose close to the windshield to see the snow coming down harder than ever, heading for the place he was always headed, the city of Baltimore. The next letter is from August 16th, 1977, which is a pretty damn important day. It's a letter home from a ship from Basilio de Tuki. Dear Tuki, hey crazy motherfucker, greetings from the poop deck. The sun is going down over the Gulf of Mexico and I'm hiding between container topside, getting stoned with a couple of beers I hid in the galley icebox. The sunsets are stunning, breathtaking, even before you catch the heavy, heavy so you can imagine how sweet they are with a nice buzz. I started sketching the stern of the ship. I think we're facing Haiti. We're headed for New Orleans again. New Orleans every 12 days. Coming in empty and going out with everything from frozen chickens to Kodak film. I'm too fried to draw, so I thought I'd drop you a line. It's been too long. I think my art is getting better. I've been drawing the men who work in the steward department, their big faces poking into pots of oil and water. Most of them are Puerto Rican on this run, back and forth between San Juan and New Orleans, and sometimes Beaumont, Texas. When the rest of the crew headed to the whorehouse, I looked up Johnny Winter's parents in the white pages, and there was his old man, John Dawson Winter, Jr. I grabbed a cab on the dock and rode by the house, but I didn't knock. The chief cook sweats right on through the paper of his cigarette, and every ten seconds, wipes his face with a filthy rag and says, It's a hot tamale today. He looks like Ernest Borgnine, only not as handsome.
2: <laughs>
1: I guess you know that Elvis died today. I was sitting in the galley waiting for Chow, and we were getting a fuzzy reception out of Miami, and there was Dave Marsh. I read it in the Rolling Stone, it must be true. Dave Marsh preaching on TV with news anchors, like it was Dallas or something. A black messman looked up at the TV. The TV hangs on chains screwed into the ceiling, and he laughed, hard and ugly, at the news that Elvis had died. He really put some effort into it. Ha, ha, ha. I wanted to knock his teeth out. I used to catch a buzz with him and his folks when we used to listen to Parliament Funkadelic and Slide. I didn't even know I gave a shit about Elvis. I always thought the Beatles had given birth to themselves. I was already cranky because I was coming down from tripping. A couple of hits of pane last night. I didn't get a wink of sleep. You know how when the flashes are over and that Morse code runs up and down your spine for hours? Reefer buzz I've got going now is taking some of the edge off, and I'm hoping to sleep before my shift rolls around. I dropped the window pane about an hour before sunset. I washed it down with a beer and tied my ankles to the legs of the steel desk <laughs> that's bolted to the deck in my room, and then I hung myself upside down out of the porthole window. <laughs> Portholes are big and rectangular now, not round like they had on the Titanic. I secured my ass with a Baltimore knot. Now you wire fans like recall that I stole this for the show. Do you know what a Baltimore knot is? It's named after me. It's a knot that's never tied the same way twice. (laughs) Man, I am tripping my nuts off, hanging out the porthole, my head just a foot above the waterline as the ship is pushing through the ocean, spray soaking my head as I stared up into the black night and the stars, everything twirling like flying lampshades, black night, a million diamonds, and I'm seeing the moon wash purple and pink Popsicle green. And then the guy from the 12 to 4 shift came to get me to relieve him, and he had to haul me back in through the porthole. The Baltimore knots held fast, though. Wouldn't be writing to you now if they hadn't. You know how I found out that Elvis was important, Tookie? I mean, really important? Whack that noodle of yours between your ears. I'll tell you how. Howie lieth. Remember the blizzard in our senior year when we went down the waterfront to see Mr. Orlo and you bought that old Meerschaum? I almost pissed myself laughing when you called your parents after we got stuck on Clinton Street. Hi, Pop, you said. Me and Basilio went out to the library in the blizzard. <laughs> hey, Took, you forgot all about the library like you told your old man now. We were making fun of Rolling Stone for putting Dylan and Baez on the cover. The magazine got mixed in with all the shit I threw in my bag when I shipped out after we graduated, and I finally got around to reading it. Howie Wyeth was playing piano on that tour, the Rolling Thunder Review. Me and you were asking our parents for money to go see Fog Hat at the Civic Center, while Dylan was putting on Ziggy makeup and rocking out with Mick Bronson and Roger McGuinn and some gorgeous fiddle player named Scarlett. Here's the line that stayed with me from that article. Somebody was talking about Elvis, And then somebody pointed across the dressing room to Howie, and he said that Howie Wyeth played the piano that was ancient, holy, and American. Man, I even like the way those words look on paper. Ancient, holy, and American. I wanted to find him right away, whoever he was. In New Orleans, you can find anything. Maybe I'd ask him about his grandfather, see if I could pick up a couple of tricks But the closest I've gotten so far is a new album out of D.C. by a guy named Robert Gordon. Rockabilly, Elvis, Holy American Piano, Amphetamines, Jerry Lee Lewis. I bought the record on vinyl and one of the engineers, one of the guys who took the Elvis news hard, the guy who told the black mess men to shut his goddamn mouth, he has a turntable in his room and he copied it for me onto a cassette. Then I was looking through some other magazine, some rag they were giving away in a record store on Decatur Street, and some New York guitar player named Robert Ross said Howie Wyeth used to play drums for him. And if you ain't at your best, Ross said of the drummer, Howie's going to bury you in a barrage of brilliance on a yard sale drum kit made out of trash can lids and spaghetti pots. When I find him, I'm going to ask him for both of us. What the fuck was Mick Ronson doing on tour with Bob Dylan? Musicians are different from me and you, Tookie. I'm not sure how, but they are. You think Robin Trower wrote Rock Me Baby? Start reading the publishing credits and you'll find out who your rapats are. Everybody wrote that song. Even some goof named Johnny Cymbal. Johnny Symbol. I'm learning so much out here. My old man, he was a real seaman. He left Macon Street when he was just 16 for his first run down to Venezuela on a Bethlehem Steel oil sh- oil ship. But I'm just fucking around. And I like it. And I don't think I'm going to come back to college like my folks want me to. Remember that day we got our diplomas? Me you, and Flannery racing up Charles Street in Mom's Pacer, passing a fat joint and listening to Trower kick the shit out of two Rolling Stones? The takers get the honey, givers sing the blues. I told my parents I needed a year to figure out my shit. Not sure how much I need now, but I know I need more time. I got a cheap room near the SIU hall in New Orleans, and between ships I stay in and my forecastle and I paint. I don't even get high that much, not too much, when we're in port. Just me and a hot plate and my brushes and vegetable cans. I miss Trudy, but not enough to come home. She took a bus to visit once, and I'm trying to get her to come again. Don't want to lose her. I'm gonna finish this beer and get some sleep. We hit New Orleans in a couple of days and then I'll drop the letter in the box. And the very last part is from 30 years later, 2006. <clears throat> it's from the point of view of Tookie. I buried Feluch today. Just me and two or three people who knew him and weren't dead yet themselves. Fuck it was cold the ground frozen, and my bad leg acting up. January seventh, two 2006, King would have been about 74. I kept turning around thinking I'd see Basilio walking through the tombstones with that I'm smarter than you smile on his face. I don't know why. I haven't seen him since the day we graduated high school. That's what I was thinking, my mind wandering while the priest laid the mumbo-jumbo on old Felooch. Last I heard... Basilio and Trudy got divorced, and he was living in the house where his father grew up, painting pictures of crabs and rockfish on the sides of seafood trucks. I think he's got a grown daughter, that's what his mom told my mom at the supermarket a while back. When my mother passed away, it was just me and Dad and Faluch and then it was just me and Falluch. now it's just me. I bet that old goat has 300 radios in his house. I'll find out soon enough. I'm going to inventory every stationary bike and cutie doll from the attic to the basement. Even the nail of the Sacred Heart of Mary is hanging on. And then I'm going to set all of it on eBay, air the whole joint out, and sell it to the first asshole who shows up with cash. What did Mom always say? I'm going to sell the whole kitten caboodle. I got the old AMP clipboard here on my lap, rolling a fat one. Basilio used to call them Fidel Burgers. 4 4.30 in the afternoon and it's dark already, all by myself in this house. I'm really alone for the first time in my life. This shit costs $100 for an eighth of an ounce. You get about five skinny joints out of it. Me and Basilo used to buy a pound of tumbleweed Mexican for $140 in high school and sell three quarters of it and keep the rest for our trouble. Sometimes the only buzz you got back then was a headache couple of tokes of this hydroponic shit man it's got colors in it i haven't seen since i played with crayons half of this and you're done for the day i'll be cooked soon enough laying on the twin bed where faluch slept in with the six shooters carved into the headboard of the bed and his 10 million radios faluch collected radios like other bring home lost dogs he'd find them in alleys and garbage cans he'd bring them home and patch them up These shelves are just cinder block and cut-up plywood, rechargeable batteries and surge protectors and extension cords all over the place. Every night, he'd tune all of them to the same AM station, George Norris, coast to coast. Nothing but flying saucers and shadow people and life on Mars. Before I started getting high and running out, as soon as dinner was over, I'd come in and listen with him. Falou said he liked the show because it proved that man doesn't know anything at all. Man, this dope is good. Fifty times stronger than it used to be. And I don't enjoy it half as much as I used to. Falluch always had his eye on my mother's Bakelite Emerson. And when she died, the first thing he did was sneak it in here with all the others like I wouldn't know. I'd rescue it, and he'd steal it back, and I'd come and get it again until I got tired of playing, and I let him just keep it. He's got it in a place of honor now, near the window. Once, when it was just me and Faluch living here... Fighting over who had to do the dishes, I saw a write-up in the sun paper saying Basilio's old friend, Mr. Orlo, had died, and that the new owner was going to sell all that junk for next to nothing. I told Falluch about the radios Orlo had, and talked him into getting out for a change. Get out of the house. We got lost, never found the place, and came home. And Falluch gave me a bunch of shit about why you shouldn't go any further from home than your feet will take you. People think it's a long way between the burbs and the city because it looks so different. But if it ain't rush hour, and you take the tunnel, you can be at Basilio's grandfather's house in 15 minutes. Twelve miles away, and I never, ever saw him again. That snowy day when we drove to the junk house is one of my favorite memories of all time. Everything closed but hospitals and police stations, but we went out anyway, riding around, getting high, driving up this lane of oyster shells covered with snow to a castle that said, salvage, painted on the side in 10-foot-tall letters. Basilio said Orlo used to give him a couple of bucks and a six-pack to touch up the letters in the summertime. And we looked through all his junk. One room was nothing but doorknobs, and another was like a hippie museum. I found an original copy of Look at Yourself by Uriah Heap, the one that came with reflective foil on the cover, so you could, you know, look at yourself. I don't know why that's <laughs> I still got it. It's in mint condition. Basilio asked about some busted frames in the corner and Mr. Orlo made his hot chocolate. We walked out to the end of the pier with our mugs, the real deal, milk and Hershey syrup, none of that Swiss piss crap. And we finished off our roach and watched the tugboats go back and forth past Fort McHenry in the snow. Basilio kept saying that if he could just get that scene to yield, I always remembered that he used that word, yield. If he could paint tugboats riding past Fort McHenry in the snow the way it looked in his mind, he said, then I'll be a real artist. I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. He could draw anything. Once this lady down the street from his parents' house gave him $100 and who knows what else to paint Dion DiMucci on one of her kitchen cabinets. So I'm listening to Coast to Coast. And someone called in and told George Norrie that Dion was jogging down the street one day and saw God. Norrie plays a lot of good music on a show when he's not talking to people who have lost their appendix to aliens. (laughs) Sometimes Basilio drew faces at the bottom of the letters he sent me when he was at sea. Faces of the guys he worked with in his own mug and George and Ringo. And I love getting those letters. The stories he told. You know how people talk about something cool that they've seen, but you haven't? like Niagara Falls or one of those mountains of skulls in Cambodia. I never saw the things that Basilio saw. After high school, I started taking care of stuff around the house. I never saw much of anything outside of Dorsey and Elkbridge. But I did see an eclipse once in the backyard. And then the letters stopped. A couple of times I thought of calling. I thought he'd come to my dad's funeral. And then I thought he'd come to my mom's funeral. And then I thought maybe I'd see him today at Falluch's funeral, walking through the graveyard to see if I wanted to get high. Wish I knew what happened to his mother's car. I think Mr. Bolioso paid three grand for it back in 75. You could get $7,000 for it today in good shape. Basilio and I thought 1976 was so uncool. We said we were having fun. We did have fun, a lot of fun. If you think you're having fun, maybe you're having fun. But we bitched a lot about how we'd missed the real stuff. We daydreamed about things that happened when we were only nine or 10, the Stones touring with Ike and Tina, flying that flag for the first time, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. By 1976, Evelyn Champagne King had taken all the chicks away. Elton was on the throne and things just seemed to get worse every year especially when Keith Moon died in 1978. There were the Ramones. God bless those glue-sniffing knuckleheads. They saved rock and roll for a couple of days, but nobody was listening when they were alive. Joey dead. Johnny dead. Dee Dee dead. A couple of years ago, they came out with volume five of Dylan's bootleg series, The Rolling Thunder Review. I'm not sure I can hear Howie's holy ancient American piano but I like it, especially the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, because it's a Baltimore song. They release everything today. All the stuff that used to be mysterious and legendary, it's all out there now. The vaults are empty and nothing's secret in the information age. Not even Brian's smile. Humble Pie had this song we loved listening to. 30 days in the hole. More like 30 years, if you ask me. I'm fucked up. You can trip on this shit. Better stand up and put some music on. Open the window. Let some air in. I'm going to tune all of these radios to 105.7 WKTK. Oldies. All Beatles. Lola by the Kinks. And at least once a day, Cream and Skinner. And if you're really lucky every now and then, some Nazareth and Hoople, and Rebel Rebel by Bowie. Helter Skelter, as loud as it will go. I'm going to dial them all up to the same station the way Faluch used to. Me and Basilo thought we were cooler than everybody because we could name all of Frank Zappa's albums in order from Freak Out right on through to Roxy and elsewhere. We used to fuck with our Spanish teacher and thought Bob Dylan was square for playing cowboy music. We weren't hip enough to know it was hillbilly music. Who could figure out how Mick Ronson teleported from the Spiders of Mars to Bob Dylan? How do you get all those guitars out of your head so you can think straight? Mick Ronson dead. Steve Marriott dead. Howie Wyeth dead. Elvis dead. Zappa pink slipped with prostate cancer, just like my old man. How weird is that? Beetle John and Beetle George dead. First my parents and now Falouch dead as a hammer in this bed just a couple of days ago, all of his radios giving the morning's traffic report at once. The day we got our diplomas, the centennial class of Transfiguration High of Baltimore, was the last time I ever saw Basilio de and for all I know, that crazy motherfucker's dead too. Good God how we love to ride around all day and all night, getting high and listening to Johnny Winter wail every now and then. Well, it's kind of hard to tell, but I'm still alive and well. Thank you.
0: to episode 10 and don't forget Moonsickness is now available on a million different platforms and from a million different places if you're interested we'd love for you to check it out we'll see you soon for episode 11 which features a very special guest we're excited about it was a great conversation and that will be coming up sooner rather than later thanks see ya